Now, please take your Bibles and let's turn to Ezra 6. And we will read a portion there, uh, part of the reading last week, but we will read these verses again to familiarize our minds and to focus our thoughts on what the Lord is saying to us, what we need to notice, and what is profitable to our minds. So, Ezra 6 and the verse number 16, let us hear the Word of God as we read down to the close of the chapter. Ezra 6, verse 16, And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the children of the captivity, kept the dedication of this house of God with joy and offered up the dedication of, of this house of God, an hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel, twelve he goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions, and the Levites in their courses, for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written, in the book of Moses. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the fourteenth day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites were purified together, all of them were pure, and killed the Passover for all the children of the captivity, and for their brethren the priests, and for themselves. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God the God of Israel. And we know that God will bless the reading of His own Word to our hearts and minds. So again, we will have a word of prayer. Let's just bow in the Lord's presence. Let's pray. And every believer, please do that. Pray for me for help from heaven and for your own heart and for all around you that the Lord will come near. Our gracious God, we wait in Thy presence, in Thy holy courts, we thank Thee that this is Thy house, that it is in the gatherings of Thy people that Thou dost uh, condescend to meet and to bless them as You draw very near. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt do that even now, and Thou wilt arrest our thoughts and our minds by the help of the Spirit. O Lord, we, again we pray for the closing out of everything that would be a hindrance and a distraction May we be taken up with God. May our minds be captivated by the Word. May we be arrested by divine truth. May we know Thee coming alongside of us to bless us this day and to minister unto our souls. Hear us, O God, we pray. Grant help from heaven and abide with us throughout the time that remains. For this we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake and for God's eternal and everlasting glory. Amen and amen. Now we come to these verses today in which we have a narrative given by Ezra, 
setting before us what happened eventually when the Lord's people were firmly established in Jerusalem at the time after the first return that took place under Zerubbabel. I mean, the first return from Babylon. And in this narrative given by Ezra regarding that first return, this sixth chapter brings us to the point where the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem has reached completion. Overall, it was about 20 years after that first return, after it had taken place that the building of the house of God was finished. It was a lengthy delay, and yet there are two main reasons why the work was delayed. First of all, there was the opposition of the people of the land, the Samaritans. We learned this, we saw this in earlier studies. The Samaritans uh, followed a false religion, a dark and also a dangerous belief system that was a mixture of truth and error. And therefore, they resisted what was being done. They opposed vehemently the rebuilding of the temple. They saw all that was happening as a threat to the religion that they followed, that they espoused, and therefore vehemently and relentlessly they resisted what was being done by God's people. That was one reason why there was a period of almost 20 years before the work was finished. But there's another reason which I also drew to your attention, and that is the apathy and the indifference that came in among the Lord's people. And we looked at that and we thought about that and again in an earlier message or two. It seems actually, as I pointed out at that time, that God's people were content to submit to the agenda of the Samaritans and cease from their rebuilding of God's house. They were content just to go along with what was happening. And yet at the same time, they gave themselves very eagerly to give attention to their own affairs while God's house was lying in that unfinished position or that unfinished state. All of that detail is the evidence that complacency had come into their hearts. And of course that can happen very easily and still happens among us, doesn't it? And we need to be on our guard against apathy, complacency, indifference, or all these different words that can be employed to describe that state of things into which even the Lord's people very often sink in their spiritual pilgrimage and in their uh, walk with God. We can be very complacent. And therefore, it was not until the Lord raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that the hearts of the Lord's people were stirred again, and the vital work of re-erecting the temple was restored and was then brought to a glad conclusion. Now, the completion of the rebuilding of the temple was immediately followed by the dedication of that house. Twice in this passage, and I showed you this last week, but twice in this passage, a certain phrase is used. It's the phrase, the dedication of this house of God. And then there follows, through to the close of the chapter, a narrative of the details of the dedication of the new temple. 
Now, in relation to this matter of the temple being dedicated to God, last week we considered one main point. That's as far as I was able to get last week. One main point, and that is what actually motivated them to enter into the dedication of the house. And it's found, uh, first of all, in verse 16, we're told there that they kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And there's where we find what motivated them. Their hearts were filled with joy. There was a joyful attitude. There was a joyful spirit. There was a new outlook. In other words, their indolence and their carelessness and their indifference are suddenly swept away. God is at work. He makes them joyful. We saw that in verse number 22. It says there so powerfully, so clearly, the Lord had made them joyful. And because the Lord made them joyful, therefore they entered into the matter of dedicating God's house with a joyful attitude. They were moved by that attitude. They were motivated by it to be a dedicated people, even as they dedicated the house of God for the glory of God. Their own hearts were greatly moved to enter into that dedication, and they themselves as we learn here, became a very dedicated people, at least as far as this time is concerned. The Lord made them joyful, and we saw how He did that. By His sovereign power, by His sovereign provision, and His sovereign protection. And that's all I will say for time's sake with regard to what I explained to you last week on that matter of the Lord making them joyful. So there was the source of this joyful attitude. The Lord made them joyful. The stimulus of it was simply this, that everything that happened with regard to the dedication of the temple had to do with the centrality of the priesthood and the sacrifices. That means God's way of redemption, God's way of peace. And that's the only real stimulus to personal dedication to the Lord and to the things of God. We need to be stimulated to dedicate ourselves to the Lord. We need to be stirred up. But what will do it? Well, apart from the Lord working their hearts and making them joyful, they began to understand what this was all about. That this temple that's being built is actually a, an object lesson in redemption. It is a portrayal of the truths that revolve around the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll see more about that today. And therefore, that stimulated their souls to really give themselves joyfully up to the Lord and to surrender to the Lord. Let me just remind you of that. There is no other stimulus that will move your soul to give yourself to the Lord wholeheartedly in a dedicated manner, without reservation, but that great truth of the cross and what the Lord has done for you there, that's what stimulates the soul and adds to the joy that the Lord creates within us as He moves upon our hearts and upon our minds. And therefore, we need to keep the cross always before us. Now, today we return to this passage to further uh, detail about the dedication of the temple, detail that has much to say to us about being dedicated to the Lord ourselves and to His cause in our own spiritual experience. 
All the detail to which I refer is centered on one important truth, namely the objective in view in the dedication of the temple. The objective that was in view in the dedication of this temple. That is a a matter that we would do well to ponder very, very carefully. What, in essence, was the objective? What was their goal in the dedication of the temple? Have you ever thought about that when you've read this passage or maybe other passages in, in the Word of God about God's people dedicating a building or dedicating themselves? What is the objective in all that? That's a vital thing. There has to be a goal in being dedicated to the Lord. And taking the temple here, let me just say to you that the dedication of the temple was essentially for the Lord's house to be used for the purposes that God intended it to fulfill and to be used for in those days and in those times. That's a very simple thing, isn't it? And yet, we could miss it all together. When you go down through these verses, you will find there's nothing mysterious about this dedication. There's nothing mystical about it. Nothing like that whatsoever. You begin to read of of details, which I'm going to come to with you now shortly, but as you go through, you'll find detail after detail, and there's nothing mystical about them. There's nothing mysterious about them. They're plain, they're straightforward, but those details are describing that they're dedicating this house with the objective in view and in mind that it will be used for the purpose for which it was actually built. Now, I hope that sinks in. As I look down at you, maybe it doesn't really impress you. I don't know. But I must say it really hit me. This house is dedicated so that it will fulfill the purposes for which it was built. And that raises the question, what were the purposes for the building, the rebuilding of the temple? I want to look at that with you now. And that's a very simple line of thought. Purposes for which the temple was built. What are they? There are four of them that are underlined in these verses. And number one, it was built and dedicated to teach the only way to have peace with God. I keep it as simple as possible. You know why? Because that has never changed. We meet here today in a house that was actually just working this out. It's not hard to work out. Opened 43 years ago, just passed. Why was this building erected? And why was it dedicated to the Lord at His opening service? What was the purpose of all that? So that this house that was built in those times would be used for this particular purpose as a house in which it would be taught then and since and right on through that there's only one way to have peace with God. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem. 
And you know, that one way of peace with God is what the enemy really hated. And that's why they did not want the, the temple rebuilt. They had their own way, their own religion, their own gods, their own temple, their own sacrifices, their own priesthood. And they detested what was happening because what this temple represented, represented it, namely that there's only one way to peace with God, was contrary to the entire thinking of the Samaritans and contrary to their whole form of religion. And my dear friend, we must learn from that today a very solemn and a very serious lesson. There's only one reason for the church of Jesus Christ's existence on this earth. And that is to set out clearly and plainly how men can have peace with God. And that includes having buildings where that is the single message that goes out from the pulpit or out from the Sunday school class or the children's meeting or the youth church or the youth uh, meeting or whatever. That's the single message that must be proclaimed and that's the message that the world and the devil hate. And so look with me here at verse number 17 and you begin to see it unfold. It says, And offered at the dedication of this house of God an hundred bullocks, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel twelve he goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. You might read that and do so in a very perfunctory way and say, there's not much there. Sure, I know this. My dear friend, do not miss the gospel teaching in those words. Please turn with me to 2 Chronicles 7. Let's have we look here at what happened when the first temple was built and dedicated. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 5. And we read here of Solomon uh, offering sacrifice at the uh, time when that first temple that he had spearheaded in the building, the building of that temple, he offered these sacrifices. Look at the, the details here. Second Chronicles 7 verse 5, And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Now that's a statement of fact. There's the number of sacrifices. It says there 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. But it was done in the process of dedicating the house of God. Now the question arises, why were there so many animals offered? There are less here in Ezra chapter 6 at the dedication of the second temple. Although there are quite a few, but far, far less than what you find in Solomon's day. Just taking Solomon's, why were there so many offerings? Why so many animals, all these oxen, all these sheep, brought to the one altar and slaughtered one after the other, burned in that altar, their blood shed? Why is this? Why would one not do? Never mind 22,000. And there's a very simple answer to that question. And the answer is not that they needed all these animals to be slaughtered because only then would there be a sufficiency made for the atonement of the people. And I say that for this reason. The blood of no bullock or goat ever removed one sin. 
Never mind the blood of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So it was not because all that blood would then, as it accumulated, that would wash away the sins of the Israelites. No, no Israelite in the history of the Old Testament was ever saved by the blood of an animal. How do we know that? Because Paul tells us in Hebrews 10, verse number 4, where he says, It is not possible that the blood of calves and goats should take away sins. So, why so many then? And the answer is this. To teach the Lord's people in those days, in that very dramatic way, all these creatures been brought, all these animals been slaughtered and burned and their blood shed and that blood sprinkled, to teach the Lord's people that they needed a sacrifice of infinite value. And that's how God taught it. So many offerings. To bring home that the only sacrifice that atones for the soul, the only sacrifice that has the sufficiency, the infinite value to deal with sin and to cleanse the heart of the ungodly and justify the unrighteous and redeem us and cleanse us and bring us nigh to God is the sacrifice of God's dear Son. It's the only one with the value that saves. And you know, my friend, that truth, that truth is lost sight of more and more and more that it is the work of Jesus Christ that has the infinite value required to bring about the deliverance of men and women from their sins. So why, why was the temple dedicated in that particular way, whether Solomon's or the second temple, to send out the message, to send out the, the notice, this is what this house represents. It represents, it teaches, it presents, it points forward to the sacrifice that has unlimited value, the sacrifice of God's dear Son. Do you remember what I told you about this second temple? Into it came the Lord Jesus one day, or in fact many times in His own ministry. He was actually in that temple, the Lamb of God, who stood there in the precincts of the temple and was actually presenting himself as the sacrifice that does save and does atone, and his sacrifice alone. And you see, there must be no deviation from this whatsoever. In other words, where there's a dedication of heart and mind and, and soul uh, with regard to the things of God, this is where it all begins. This is where it starts. It starts at the cross. It starts with adherence to this great truth. It revolves around this one sacrifice by which alone we have peace with God. And therefore, from that, we must not shift. And that's why, that's why our building here is a preaching house first and foremost the preaching of the gospel that saves, and there is no other gospel that saves. That's why the Lord's people must value and cherish the whole concept and the whole presentation and Scripture of the finished work of Jesus Christ 
And if that is the case, my friend, then you will treat the services that are convened in this house where Christ has preached and preached again and preached unfailingly by the grace of God. You will treat all that with dedication. And you'll tell yourself, I must be there. Christ's going to be preached again. And you'll tell yourself, I want to hear it. But you'll also tell yourself, I want others to hear it. And furthermore, you'll tell yourself and you'll pray about this, Lord, do not let that ever cease. Let that not diminish. Let that be the primary and the only message that goes out from that pulpit. The Word been preached and Christ is the Word and the whole focus of the Word is on the cross and the finished work and the atonement. It could not be more simple. But the tragedy is we're so inclined to think that we need something else and we must shift away and bring in something new. That's the bent of today. I thought of Paul's words in Galatians 6, 14, his great statement, God forbid that I should glory save on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. God forbid that I should glory. And the word glory means boast. And Paul is saying that there is one matter in which he could boast without sinning. And that matter is the truth of the cross. God forbid that I should boast, save. Here's the only exception. Save on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, my dear friend, do you see what I'm saying? We're looking here at the purposes for which the temple was built, and the first one is this. It was built and dedicated to teach the only way to peace with God. And really it was the message that Paul encapsulates there. God forbid that I should glory, boast in anything but the cross. Let me take you to John 2 for a moment, because in John 2, something happens that's very, very striking, and it's with regard to this very temple that was built in those days of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and so on. So, John chapter 2, look with me at verse 13. Many of you will know these verses. And from verse 13 to verse 17, you have an event recorded. And we're told in verse 13 that the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, that's significant because that's the very same time as is in Ezra chapter 6, because in that passage you read of the Passover. That temple was dedicated at the time of the Passover, celebrated on that very occasion of the dedication of the temple. And here in John 2, the Lord goes up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And notice verse 14, and found in the temple. That's the same building. That's Zerubbabel and his friends had built those four or five hundred years before. And as I said earlier, the Lord's in this temple. And the Lord finds something in this temple. He finds these items. Verse 14, those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting, and you know what he did? 
he drove them all out, as verse 15 says. Verse 16, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I just want to focus on that verse for a moment there. Verse 17, when they saw the Lord purge the temple, when they saw the Lord took the whip, and drive out these people, and drive out all that, would, that had gathered up there in that whole set of circumstances. The disciples then remembered this verse from the Psalms. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. What is that? There's the dedication of Christ to the house of God. The house of God that had been turned into a kind of a marketplace. And actually, when you look at the details, as I said, there were sheep, there were oxen, there were doves. All of those are creatures of sacrifice. They were offered in different times of sacrifice. And so there's nothing wrong with the creatures, but the, what was wrong was the whole process was not right. Obviously, things were not the way that they ought to have been. Yes, oxen and sheep and dogs were to be brought to the house of God and offered up there, but they weren't to be sold in the house of God. And the whole thing has been altered and changed in the Lord's day. And therefore, uh, the, the fault that was in view here uh, that marked this scene was the fault of an emphasis on what was convenient. That's really what's in view there. They, they, these creatures are there, and the people can simply go along and buy them, and then supposedly offer them up for their sins. And the whole thing is wrong. It's a, a religion of convenience. It's a religion of carnality. And for that reason, there's not the dedication to the things of God, and to the house of God, and to the mind of God, and especially to the cross that there should have been. I show you this just to bring home to your hearts that the temple originally built to teach the one and only way of peace with God has now, because of uh, the activity of the Jews on the Lord's day, it has degenerated into a place where there's no emphasis really on that anymore. And there's simply this focusing in on that which pleased people and satisfied their carnal curiosity. That's how the things of God can degenerate. You know, the Lord had to cleanse the temple twice. The one in John 2 is at the start of his ministry. And then he did the very same again at the end of his ministry, as you read Matthew 21. And few of the other gospel writers record that one. Only John records the first cleansing. That's in John 2. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they refer to the second cleansing that happened, therefore, about three years later. Do you see that? The Lord, the Lord swept out all that nonsense, and yet it's brought back in within three years. See, there's a point you need to notice. We have to hold on rigidly to the preaching of the cross to the centrality of the work of Christ and the message from the pulpit and in the whole ethos of the work of God because the enemy's objective is to bring in whatever he can, even use things that might be like those sheep, oxen, and dogs associated with uh, sacrifice and so on, 
but there's something wrong about it. There's something not right about it. It's not been done in the proper way. And all of that teaches you and me today that we need to be very, very careful because the devil can come in so subtly and cause things to change even imperceptibly. And the emphasis change, changes and the focus changes and the message then begins to change. And so you need to pray with all your heart for the likes of me or Mr. Stewart or other men or whoever and pray for your own hearts that we will see this point that's made here with regard to this first reason why the temple was built. It was to present the one and only way of peace with God. We must move quickly here. Go back to Ezra 6 and look at verse 18 now. And here's the second reason why the temple was dedicated and the purpose of, of the temple being realized in that dedication. It was built and dedicated to secure service for God. Look at verse 18. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Now notice that. For the service of God. Could that be in plainer language? What is another purpose of the building of the temple? It has to do with the service of God. First of all, it has to do with the sacrifice unto God. And now it has to do with the service for God. Why do we have a meeting house? It's to serve God in its precincts and all of its ministries that are carried on within these walls. I know we can't contain God. The Bible says that. Even when Solomon built this glorious temple, the Lord says, I want you to understand that you cannot contain me within four walls. And that's always true because God is unlimited and God is everywhere. But at the same time, He does condescend to bless a certain place. Every house, meeting house, that is set apart for His glory, dedicated for His honor. He condescends to come among the people who gather there and bless them and, and meet with them. And there are those people in their various ways and ministries. They serve the Lord. The, the, the house is built, therefore, for the service of God. And you see, in connection with all that, you read about the priests and the Levites. It says, they set the priests, verse 18 again, just look at this verse. It's a, an interesting, striking verse. They set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God. And what I find there is that all of this service was inseparably involved in the dedication of the temple, which means that in the dedication of the house of God, those who were, those, uh, who were serving Him, these priests and Levites, they were dedicated too. So there was a dual dedication. I mentioned this briefly last week. In the very dedicating of the temple, those who are serving God, they're also being dedicated to the Lord. They've been set apart to the Lord in the very process of dedicating the house of God. Look at verses 16 and 17 together. It says, The children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy and offered at the dedication of this house of God. It goes on to tell what they offered, but I want you just to notice two verbs there. 
It says in verse 16 that these people kept the dedication. And then in verse 17 it says, offered at the dedication. In other words, there's a dedicating of the house. But those who are there to do the dedicating, they're very much involved. And they themselves are dedicating themselves, singled out and underlined by those two verbs. They kept and they offered. Their hearts are fully involved in serving God, and therefore they themselves are dedicating themselves to the Lord. Remember I explained to you that the word dedicated that is used here in verse 16 and 17, or dedication, it literally means to press in. Think about that again. A pressing in. Here are people and, and they're, 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 with all their hearts and souls and mind, they're giving themselves to the dedication of God's house. They're pressing into it. It's being set apart and they're being set apart. Their whole being is taken up with what is happening here because they are there in that house, a house of service to God, and they are there to serve the Lord. I want you to see from this that service to God and His house must be scriptural. Because it says at the end of verse 18, as it is written in the book of Moses. And from those words, we have the emphasis. Their service was scriptural. It was according to what was written in the book of Moses. And I noticed that and I thought about that and there are a few facts that flow out of that well, I want just to leave with you at this moment here, but the service of God must be, it must be scriptural. It wasn't optional. They did this according to what was written in the book of Moses. Now, we're focusing here on the priests and Levites. Now, there's something about this I want you to get, and don't miss it. The priests and Levites didn't suddenly say to themselves someday, I think, I will serve in the temple. Or, on the other hand, I think I'll not bother. Why do I say that? Because every priest and every Levite who was born was born into the priestly tribe, and there was no option but to serve God. That's why they were set apart, because they were born to it. Do you get the point? They were born to it. Let me remind you, Christian, serving God is not optional. You were born to it. I mean born again to it. I hope it's sinking in. Because there are people who think, well, others can do, others can do the work. I'll not bother. There's something wrong with that Attitude, that approach, that's the way you think. That the service of God's house, and it could be a, a, any number of things. When you listen to the announcements and you look at all the meetings and you hear what's being said and, and you think about those who serve the Lord here, and we say to ourselves, there's a vast amount of work done in that whole realm of things. And that's true, and we don't glory in that. We're just stating a fact. But let me ask you, my friend, are you a bystander saying, well, that's for them, that's for the elders, that's for the deacons, that's for the Sunday school teachers. It's got nothing to do with me. My dear friend, it has everything to do with you. 
if you are a Christian. Because you see, as I said, the priest, the Levite, this was not optional. He's born to it. That's what those words mean for one thing, as it is written in the book of Moses. You know what the Lord says about Christians that will bring this home to you, I hope? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of the living God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Do you know that? If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that means you're born again. And if that is true, then you are the temple of God. And the temple of God is an expression that signifies that the Lord's temple in this world, in the most precise sense, is not a building. It's the people who inhabit the building or meet in the building or they could meet outside, or they could meet in a tent, wherever it might be, but they are the temple of God. But the very fact of that description of people, sinners saved by grace, brings out the further fact that serving God is not an optional matter. Ye are the temple of God. And my dear friend, see it this way. What a privilege you have to be included in that description, being in the temple of God, belonging to the Lord according to Scripture. This is your pedigree. This is your standing. This is what God has done for you. He drew you. He saved you. He has given you the privilege of serving Him from the moment you're saved until the moment you go home to heaven. Now, we all have to lament our failure. And that's one thing. But it's an entirely different matter to take the view, well, that's optional. I don't have to serve the Lord. I can just kind of drift along here and get through and go home to heaven. Ah, my dear friend, that's a dangerous way to think because the true, the true child of God whose heart's inflamed with love for the Lord will want to serve the Master. We must keep moving here. Their service to God was scriptural. It's what was written in the book of Moses. It's also structured. If you look there at verse 18 again, it says, And they set the priests in their divisions. You know, every little word's so important. And that word set, when I began to look at it, I've discovered it means this, to cause to rise, to cause to rise. So this is the priests and the Levites, and they are set into their divisions and into their courses. In other words, there were, there were certain alloc uh, roles allocated divisions, courses that these men were to fulfill. And so the occupants of these rules were not there at random. Rather, each man occupied a place as he was caused to rise into it. That really struck me. That's what I mean by God's service being structured. God's service is to be carried out in a fashion where at a certain age, for example, or a certain level of maturity, a person takes an office. A person becomes, say, a children's worker, Sunday school teacher, whatever it might be. That's the idea here. Or if you take especially maybe, well, the office of the ministry, 
or the office of the elder or the office of the deacon. Now, I know that not all of the Lord's people can be ministers or elders or deacons. Obviously not. And as far as gender is concerned, it can only be the male members. But the whole point is that this is not a random thing where we just simply say, well, as it were, picking them out of a hat. We'll get a few men here. And look at him. He might do. No, there's a structure to it. They, they are, as it says here in the meaning of this word, they're caused to rise into it because they prove themselves and they demonstrate they have the abilities and they're able to do it. That's the sense of those words. If you read the Old Testament carefully, no man entered the priesthood until he was 30 years old. wasn't allowed to be in it until he was 30 years old. Same with the Levite. There was the priest, there was the Levite. The Levite was like the, the one who assisted the priest. And so God always has had structure in His church. It's not a random thing where people just jump about and think this will do him or that will do her and there's no real thought given to it. That, my friend, is disaster. Let me say this honestly from the pulpit. Well, of course I should be honest. But when we get even the best of people and that sense of things who have matured and grown and developed and they're in, they rise to the office or the place. And remember we are thinking about elders when added to our court session. And when we get that happening in the Lord's will, it still does not mean that those who occupy the office are perfect. And so, since that's true, how important it is that thought and prayer go into all this. This is just a little, uh, a little word to you because we'll be preaching about this more and more into the new year as we keep moving along. And so there's another reason why the temple was built and dedicated with regard to uh, securing service for God. The third thing, verse number 20 it was built and dedicated to promote purity. Verse 20 says, For the priests and the Levites were purified together. All of them were pure. And the words purified and pure signify a cleansing of self. And the reference again is to the priests and the Levites, and that's fine. But remember that they remind us of, again, who we are. There are no priests and Levites nowadays like these men. That's abolished by Christ. But at the same time, there is a priesthood. And there is what we call the priesthood of all believers. Every Christian is a priest unto God. Every believer has been brought into this blessed capacity of serving God. But here's the hallmark of it. Purity. Godliness. Holiness. And this temple here in Jerusalem was built for that reason too, that there would be established thereby and through the offices of the men who labored there, there would be thereby established the purity that God required with regard to His work. You read the details in Leviticus and in Exodus about the office of the priest 
or the role of the Levite, and you will discover that God made no allowances for impurity of any kind or fashion. And I can't get into that today, but I'll just simply remind you of what the Lord says. I mean, any death, but I'll remind you of what the Lord says. In Isaiah 52 and verse number 11, it says this, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Actually, those words are prophetic words. They are written with regard to Israelites coming out of Babylon, out of the captivity. And the Lord said, Depart, depart, but as you do depart, don't bring Babylonianism with you. Touch not the unclean thing. That's the context. But there you have a statement that's always true, always relevant. Here is what God requires of you and me. He requires a purity of life, a holiness of life, just as that temple was to be a pure place, free from any impurity whatsoever. So the lives of the people who served there were to be marked by purity. And therefore, the whole building and its whole ministry was a reminder that there is a holy God. That is why purity of life is not to be treated lightly. You are representing God. God who is infinitely holy, gloriously holy, unchangeably holy. And do we represent Him if we carelessly live, if we spend our days in a fashion that sends out the wrong message about Him, whatever it may be. Let us say this, and may God write that upon our hearts. The fourth and the final point is this. It was built and dedicated to provide a place for new converts. How do I know that? Look at verse 21. It says, And the children of Israel, which were come out, were come again out of captivity, and all such, now listen to these words, all such as had separated themselves unto them, that is, unto the children of Israel, from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread. You read there in verse 21 about those who had separated themselves unto them, unto the people of God from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel. What's going on here? Remember when they came back. They come back into the midst of their enemies, the Samaritans. And the Samaritans and the others in that whole region of Palestine in those days lived in a fashion that's described here under that phrase, the filthiness of the people of the land. But wonderfully, God saves some out of that. And now they're joining themselves in the whole dedication of the temple. Do you see that? It's there. It's what actually happened. You know, sometimes we think that soul winning didn't happen until the New Testament age. And we couldn't be more wrong. Here it is in this verse. There were those who actually took the conscious decision, the personal decision, to separate themselves from the filthiness of the people of the land. 
That's the filthiness to which they used to belong. But now they're coming out of it and they're aligning themselves with God's people and they're in the temple and they're serving the Lord and they're enjoying what's going on. And that's what I mean. The temple was built and dedicated to provide a haven, a home for new converts. It's a wonderful thing when the Lord saves in our midst. When people are drawn in and people are brought to Christ. In many ways, that's the ultimate goal of having a church building, to be a haven, a place where folks saved out of sin and the world. And of course, we're all sinners, even those brought up in Christian homes and godly backgrounds. We're all sinners. But when you see the Lord working among those who are sunk into the filthiness of our day and times, and that is happening across the face of the earth, and we rejoice in that. But what I'm saying is, is that not the, 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 great, the great goal, the great purpose in having a temple, as it were, where the Lord is worshipped, where we gather to meet with Him, to hear His Word, is to see additions, to see people brought out of that lifestyle where they're lost and ungodly and they're on the wrong road altogether, and the Lord gathers them in. This is why, these are the four reasons why we can see so clearly from these, these verses that the temple was to be used for the purposes that God intended it to be used for. May the Lord apply that to our hearts. We'll close with a word of prayer, and may He write His truth on all of our minds. Let's all bow together. Let's pray. O God, our Father, we come to Thee, and we do ask Thee this day to bless Thy Word to us, to help us to remember it, to dwell on it, to draw from it. Lord, may the Holy Spirit bring it home to us with power. May it be used this day in our lives and in the life of this congregation. May Christ be magnified. Bless us now as we part. Keep your hand on us in the afternoon. Gather us back again this night to meet with Thee. May Christ be exalted, for we pray this in His name. And for His sake, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be the portion of all thy people both this day and forever. Amen.